Good morning. Hope that just this week, as Kelly was mentioning, that you've been blessed by being able to join together in uh, the 21 days of prayer. Um, we'll continue to be doing that through February 9th and in uh, taking that time to just be praying both for uh, the body of Christ and for our nation. Um, this morning, we're going to move forward in our series in the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking specifically at Acts chapter 17. When you think about the gospel for a minute, when you think about when somebody says the gospel or even mentions the word the gospel, think about immediately what comes to mind. As you think about what that is that comes to mind, think about your response to the gospel. When you've heard the gospel proclaimed, what was your initial response to the gospel? When somebody brings up the word, the gospel, what comes to mind? For some, the gospel is something that is separated from the word of God. And that may seem kind of strange, that may seem kind of foreign, but the truth is that many times the gospel has been kind of thought of as something you come to, and then after that, it's kind of left on the wayside. But the truth is the gospel is the center and at the heart of every aspect of Scripture. All Scripture points to the fallenness of man. Man that was created in the image of God who willfully and willingly sinned. God, in His merciful love, sends His Son, Jesus. Why? Because the penalty for our own sin has to be paid for. And it's a penalty that only ends in death. That gospel, then, is Jesus sending His own Son for our salvation. And for many, that's where the gospel ends. But the gospel is not just that Jesus saves, but it is that He gives new life. That He gives a new life that's in the resurrection power of Jesus. And what God is calling us to live in every single day is the power of the gospel. Whether you're at school or you're at home, let me give you an example. How many of you who are kids... When you guys think about it, your brothers and sisters are at home, and there are times where you're like, I just, all I want to do is hit my brother or my sister. Anybody ever been there before? Yeah? Anybody ever feel like all you want to do is yell at your brother and sister? Right? Now, there are times where that feels so overwhelming, right? All I want to do is get them. All I want to do, I can't control myself. That's the gospel that we have power in. That same gospel is the one that says, guess what? When we have those situations in our life, whether it's with our brother and sister or whether it's with other people, it's only in God's power that we then are able to really pull back. It's Him that actually gives us the self-control. And it's in those moments that we see our need for Jesus. Well, this morning we're going to look at three responses to the gospel of Christ. And we're going to see how the world and how us, each of us, respond to the gospel. 
The last few weeks we've been looking specifically over the book of Acts and we've seen how hindrances are actually opportunities for God's providence to be seen, for His plan to go forward. Last week we saw that God is the one who opens our eyes to His truth and so that God's call for us to proclaim the gospel, to share the message of Jesus, is not one of having to convince, but rather it's God being the one that opens our eyes. This week we're going to see how we respond. And how we respond to that gospel helps us understand how when we both either share the gospel, how we are to react, but even so, as the gospel is being proclaimed each week, how we should be personally receiving the gospel. So let's go ahead and read Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15 together this morning. Let's do that. This is what it says. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphibolus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, saying, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they'd taken money as security from Jason and, they, and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Let's pray. Lord God, this morning, I pray that you would silence our hearts, that it would be your voice who speaks to us. Father, I pray that you would be the one, God, that speaks through me, that you would take restlessness in my own heart this morning and push that aside. Lord God, we pray that you would bring your word forth in power. We pray, God, that the work of the enemy to thwart or to disturb, to disrupt, to divide, would be struck down in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we ask this morning that you would be the one who speaks to us, that continues to meld and shape our hearts, and I pray that we might be responsive 
to the truth that's being proclaimed. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, Acts 17 gets to the issue or to the heart in this way. The gospel turns the world upside down and exposes the character of people's hearts through their response. The gospel turns the world upside down and exposes the character of people's hearts through their response. The gospel creates an upside-down response. That's what it does. The gospel creates an upside-down response. Now notice what Paul does here. If you recall for a moment, Paul and Silas had been imprisoned wrongfully as Roman citizens. If you remember, they had experienced Lydia who God had opened Lydia's heart to understanding of the the Scriptures, and she responds with belief. Paul and Silas, as they're going through, they command or cast out a demon and a girl who is making money for her owners. Paul and Silas are thrown into jail. They're beaten. They're persecuted, and yet... In the middle of the night, they begin singing. And God removes the shackles from them. And the jailer who oversees this responds by believing in Christ. Paul and Silas then, as they're being released, ask for the government leaders who have put them there, who have beaten them without knowing that they were Roman citizens, ask them to come And so they asked those leaders to come and they apologized to to Paul and to Silas. But then they say, we want you to leave. And so Paul goes and he ministers to Lydia and they leave. Where they come next, we're told in this passage, it says, now when they passed through Amphibolus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now this was common for Paul to do. His place was to go and to to come in and actually begin the process of coming in and proclaiming the good news of Christ to the Jews. That's where he started. And so he arrives and he lands in the synagogue and he begins to preach. And we're told in this passage that Paul went in, and as was his custom, on three Sabbath days. So he's there three weeks. And he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. What God's giving us a picture of in the Scripture is how we respond to the Gospel of Jesus. The first thing that we see is actually a response of initial resistance. Sometimes when the gospel is proclaimed, what will happen is there is initial resistance. So when you proclaim the gospel, when you share the gospel with somebody, you can expect that there might be initial resistance. Paul 
doesn't immediately come in and these people don't immediately receive. On three weeks, he's proclaiming the gospel. But it says he's reasoning. He's reasoning from the scriptures. He's explaining. And the word there in Greek here speaks of proving that was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. What he's doing is he's going through the scriptures and he's making the connections for them. What might he be showing them? We might be showing them Isaiah 53, 9 through 12, which says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he's poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What he's saying is this was no ordinary king. He's taking the scriptures, the Old Testament passages, and he's connecting the dots. He's reasoning it for them. He's saying, listen, I'm setting you out a pattern so that you can actually see the gospel of Jesus. I wonder sometimes in our desire to share our faith with others, how often are we really patient in that process? I know for me there are times where I can kind of feel like, well, I put it out there. That's good enough, right? I said it. It's almost like vomiting on somebody a little bit. It's like, blah, here it is. It's the same reason that even within our own culture, when we just answer worldly question with, the Bible says, if I don't have any reference point for the truth of the Word of God, the Bible says means almost nothing to me. It means that I have to take time to help, to work through, to go back to Genesis 3.15 and see the results of the fall of man, that sin has separated us eternally from God, and that man is in desperate need of being redeemed. That what God had promised to people was not an earthly king in the moment to restore Israel, but rather a heavenly king who was going to restore a people for himself. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.21-25 says this, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We preach Christ crucified. What did Paul do here? He reasoned, he helped them go through the scriptures, he explained to them how that Jesus was the fulfillment of those Old Testament promises, 
and he simply proclaimed that Jesus died and rose again. At the heart of every message is the gospel. And that's why when when we see the gospel as something that you're saved into and then we kind of mature out of it, we've missed the gospel. It's in the gospel power. It's why we need to repeatedly hear the gospel of Jesus being proclaimed. See, the gospel actually exposes our own hearts. Maybe it's not in times of evangelism, but how many times when we're hearing the word of God preach is there initial resistance? God's word says something and we go, I don't think so. How many of us kind of go, but uh, he must not really mean that. What's our response to the gospel? And I want us to think through that this morning. How do we respond when the gospel is proclaimed? Do we respond with initial resistance? When God says that we're to lay down our lives for him, does that meet with resistance? When God says to the rich man that he's to give up his riches for the sake of the kingdom of God, how many of us immediately go, but that doesn't mean he means me. The issue is how do we respond to the gospel? And so when we're proclaiming the gospel, we need to be aware that there's initial resistance, but we also need to be aware of our own response to the gospel. And if that initial resistance is rising up, being reminded that what's happening in these moments is we're, we're in essence waiting for somebody else to prove it to be true. One commentator said this, he said, The preaching of Paul always went straight to the doctrinal heart of the gospel without apology to those who had no prior knowledge of the biblical data. Today we face a society that's increasingly biblically illiterate. The temptation to soft-pedal the biblical content of the message on the ground that people will be put off or at least confused by material with which they are unfamiliar. The apostles' methodology is, however, conclusive for our own approach. It is the word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword in opening up the hearts of the lost and ignorant. We need to be a people who preach the word of God. The gospel is not about a better life. And what do I mean by that? Well, in Christ, it is a better life. But the world has a different understanding and definition of better life. And better life equals ease and comfort. And I'm sorry, I believe that even within the body of Christ, that often seems like a better life. But the best life is being in the will of God, no matter how hard and how difficult and how comfortable it is. says here that only some of the Jews, only some of the religious came to an understanding of Jesus. But many Greeks did. And notice the result. It says in verse 5, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jacob, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So what's the second response? The second response to the gospel is hostile opposition. Hostile opposition. The first response to the gospel is initial resistance. The second response to the gospel 
is hostile opposition. Now, we don't really think about this in this way of hostility, but the reality is, is opposition to the gospel is marked by hostility. There's something that stirs. For those of you that, that can remember being confronted with the gospel for the first time, hearing that gospel, there was hope, but there was also hostility, was there not? We see it in our own world. Hostility or opposition towards the gospel is not just passive, it's active. Opposition towards the gospel is active, always is active. So what are the reasons for opposition then that we see in this passage? The first reason that we see is fear. Fear. Now that may seem kind of odd. It says that they were jealous. Well, what's this fear of? This fear is that they're losing something that they believe is theirs. They're losing something that they believe is theirs. That's a part of jealousy. Jealousy can arise when there's a fear of losing something that is theirs. Wherever fear is, it's not being met with love. And so fear automatically creates opposition. And so when the gospel is proclaimed, we need to recognize that there are going to be opposition. We also need to recognize where that opposition is coming from. If you're hearing the gospel today, and what's rising up in your own spirit is a rejection, is a rebellion, is a hostility, I want to encourage you to look for the fear. What are you afraid of losing? What are you really afraid of losing? Are you afraid of losing control? Are you afraid you're going to lose a part of yourself? Are you afraid you're going to lose your life? What are you afraid of losing? When the gospel is opposed, fear is often at the center of it. The second aspect or second reason for this is idolatry or worldliness. Idolatry or worldliness. Notice in verse 6 through 7, it says, And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. The first reason for opposition is fear. The second reason for opposition is either idolatry, or you can even write in their worldliness. It's the fear or the frustration or the unwillingness to serve another king other than yourself. You see, when we want to worship other kings, when we have things that we would greater worship in our life, whether that's some form of sin and we're confronted with the gospel if we love that other thing more than we see the glory of God, we will oppose the gospel. 
the gospel confronts that which is in us, which is sinful. The gospel confronts the idols in our own life. The things that we run to for value and meaning and comfort. And so when we proclaim the gospel to one another and we proclaim the gospel to others who need Jesus, when we experience and see hostile opposition, we need to recognize that fear may be rising up. We need to be recognized that idolatry or worldliness is rising up. And those are the areas that we need to come alongside and move into and help expose. In your own life, if you're experiencing opposition to the gospel, I'd like to ask, what other masters are you serving? 1 John 2, 15-17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The gospel turns the world upside down. In the believer's life, the gospel turns the world upside down. It grants a peace and a joy that can only be found in Jesus, not in this world. And in the unbeliever's life, the gospel turns the world upside down because it makes them chase after things that they know they've been confronted with that provide no hope and lasting purpose. I remember a number of years ago, Tom Brady was doing an interview. Tom Brady being the quarterback at the time of the New England Patriots, been to more Super Bowls than any other quarterback at this time of his life. He had just been to the Super Bowl, one Super Bowl. And they asked him a question. It's only your second year and you've accomplished what you've always wanted to accomplish with the Super Bowl. What's next? And all he said was, I don't know. There has to be more to life than this. Because he knew that there was something missing in the earthly accomplishments. Now, I don't know if that's drawn him to the Lord. I'm not sure. But what I do know is, is that the gospel turns the world upside down. It, it changes everything. Once you've been confronted with the gospel, you have to respond. And you're going to respond either with belief or unbelief. Either way, your world's going to be turned upside down. Matthew 5 puts it best. It's in the you say statements versus the I say statements. Kelly and I were talking about this this morning. Listen to these words. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hellfire. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
It was also said, whoever divorced his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool over Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. The gospel exposes our heart. And it turns our world upside down. Because God's kingdom is different than this earthly kingdom. He didn't say, worship God and pay no attention to Caesar. He said, render unto Caesar what is his and render unto God what is his. The kingdoms were not the same. And so we need to recognize that there will be opposition to the gospel and it will be hostile. Now there's an important little caveat there. And that little caveat is in verses 8 and 9. It says, And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Notice how the civic authorities tried to deal with the gospel. They simply dealt with the gospel by attempting to keep the peace by preventing the brothers and other believers from practicing their faith. They attempted to get this security so that, that Jason and the brothers would not go out and proclaim the gospel and disrupt the peace of the culture. We need to understand that. God's kingdom is different. He didn't say peace at all cost. He said that peace was found in him. And that means that we need to be proclaimers of his truth, even when it's not popular. And it needs to be that we need to be people who live out our faith, even when it's not popular. You see, even authorities understand that the gospel has a disruptive power because it confronts us with our sin and it confronts us with the idea that this world is upside down. So, what's the third response then? The first response is initial resistance. The second response is hostile op opposition. And the third response is eager acceptance eager acceptance. Now it's in this response that we're told that these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Here's what he's saying. This is how each of us should be responding to the gospel. We need to realize that when we proclaim the gospel, there may be initial resistance. And when we proclaim the gospel, there will be hostile opposition. But the hope is, is that when we proclaim the gospel, It'll be eagerly received. 
And in our own lives, when we have the gospel proclaimed to us week to week, as followers of Christ, this response of godly character is one of eager acceptance. What does that mean? That means, as they put here in this text, that they were examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So here's what it was. They heard the gospel proclaimed. The gospel went forth, and what they did is then they took the time over the next few days to dive into the scripture, not to prove it wrong, but to prove it right. You see the difference? Not to prove it wrong, but to prove it right. They went in looking and saying, if this is true, let me see it happen. See, in our own rebellious spirits, sin has a tendency to rise up and doubt on the things that we don't like. And so we look for ways to disprove the gospel being proclaimed rather than to prove it being proclaimed. And what he's saying here is the noble response, the one of godly character, is one that looks to prove it right with honesty and integrity. The Bereans were ones that went in and dove in and looked to prove the gospel right. 1 Timothy 4.13 says this. And I think it's a a fitting passage for us this morning as we, we look at this. This is what it says. It says, Until I come, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Devote yourself to it. That's what the Bereans were doing. They were devoted to the Scriptures. Revelation 1.3 tells us something else about the Scripture. It says this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. There's a blessing in reading God's Word and hearing and responding to His Word. And we need to be a people who receive it with eager acceptance. Now what's interesting is in this passage, it points to this though. It shows us the three responses to the gospel. It shows us this one so that we might be able to understand when people are responding that they are going to respond in different ways. And we need to not be discouraged when they respond in this way. Secondly, we're to look at it ourselves and say, when the gospel is proclaimed, how am I responding to it? Am I responding to it with initial resistance? Am I responding to it with hostile opposition? Or am I responding to it with eager acceptance? Examining it, looking at it, looking to prove it to be true. Well, in part, one of the reasons that we seek to understand this is because of what we find in verses 13 through 15. And that's the truth that persecution will continue wherever the gospel is proclaimed. Persecution will continue wherever the gospel is proclaimed. We should not be surprised by persecution. In fact, we should expect it. And if it doesn't come, wonderful. But we should expect persecution. The mission of Christ is not thwarted by persecution. Because proclaiming the gospel will bring persecution. We shouldn't be surprised, but we should be prepared. 
One commentator said this. He said, yet many Christians think of their faith as a private, special interest activity. One option among many in a plural spectrum of various religions, beliefs, and opinions. They want to be left alone and aim to trouble no one. They are embarrassed by the clear clash of Christian principles with public policy. They would prefer not to think about what the Bible says on a vast range of practical principles as these applies to our own daily lives, far less the order of society and the integrity of civil government. Nevertheless, it's clear that the gospel is meant to transform the world. We need to be a people who are willing to proclaim the gospel knowing that persecution will probably result. But we need to go with the confidence of 2 Timothy. In verse, chapter 3, verse 12 through 17, which says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's our purpose this morning, is to be proclaimers of God's truth knowing the response and assessing our own response, but then expecting persecution rather than being surprised by it. Last week, we saw the work of God in salvation. This week, we would see the response of man towards that salvation. And next week, we're going to see the motivation of that proclamation for salvation. I hope that as we look at these scriptures together that we might be encouraged and exhorted to be a people who are responding to the proclaimed word of God with eager acceptance. That word noble with godly character. Knowing that God is bringing his word forth to transform the communities, the families, the nation in which we live. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can come to you proclaiming your truth. God, I pray if there are those who have never dealt with the gospel before and are hearing the gospel for the first time, I pray that whatever is stirring in their heart, if it's opposition, that they might deal with that. What fears and what other things are they worshiping in their own life? For those of us who have responded to the gospel, I pray that we might look and ask ourselves honestly, are we responding to the gospel message with initial resistance, or do we respond to it with eager acceptance? Not merely for salvation, but for growing in godliness. And are we putting our heads and our minds and our hearts into the Word of God, looking to prove the proclaimed gospel true, rather than finding ways to do the things we desire and justify them. Lord God, give us confidence and courage to be proclaimers of the truth, expecting that persecution will arise, being prepared for persecution to arise, and rejoicing when it does 
or it doesn't, knowing that you are still working out your plan. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.